Tommy, I'd like to thank you for that introduction earlier. Only one other time in my life have I been compared to Superman. And I was a youth leader in North Dakota, and a young lady there in the youth group told me that uh, I reminded her of Superman. And she must have noticed kind of the pride building up in me. And she said, oh, no, not Superman, Superman. No, the geek who works at the newspaper and wears glasses. I'm like, oh, okay, that makes a lot more sense to him. Well, we have been studying the book of Isaiah. Jared has been taking us through Isaiah. And and the next couple chapters in Isaiah talk about a very uh, interesting part of, of history where Yahweh saves the people of Judah. So today we're going to be in 2 Kings and we are going to read what the historian has said about those same events. So more than 20 years ago, after I'd shortly gotten out of the Air Force, I'd spent 12 years in the Air Force and ended up getting out, didn't know it, but uh, you know, fewer than six months before the Kosovo War began. And it turned out that my first job then, after I had separated from the Air Force, I got hired by a company to go to Germany to study the war in Kosovo for the Air Force and to help the Air Force write a report of the war. So that was my first job, and it was a great job, and there were a lot of great retired colonels and generals on the team, and then there was me. And we were studying the war to write a report for the Air Force. But the four-star general who was in charge of this report was very clear to us. He said, I don't want a history lesson. Don't just tell me what happened. He said, I I want to know what we should have learned by this. So instead of saying this happened, then this happened, then this happened, I want you to say, here are the lessons that we've learned from going to war. And so our team was tasked with not just writing down an historical account, but interpreting that account so that the Air Force could learn from it and make changes. And in fact, every chapter that we wrote had to end with very specific recommendations for the Air Force to do. Well, the book of Kings is a history account as well. The book of Kings was written by an author who sat down to to list the accounts of what had occurred in the history of Israel and Judah. But be clear, the author is not writing this just so that we can have historical knowledge. I mean, we all love learning names and places and dates, at least some of us do. But the author was more concerned about what do we learn by our history? You see, the book of Kings was written during the time of captivity. So we are going to be looking at a time in history at about 701 B.C. Well, you've got to fast forward more than 100 years when Jerusalem finally gets conquered by Nebuchadnezzar and they're put in exile and they're all sitting in Babylon. And in Babylon, the historian grabs the accounts, grabs the records, and he starts writing an orderly account of the history of the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. But the purpose of that was for lessons. You see, the the author of Kings is going to try to answer the question. Because remember, 
You're the people of God. You worship in the temple. And now the temple's been destroyed. You've been removed from the promised land. And the question in your mind is, why did this happen? What got us here? Why are we in captivity? And so the, the historian sits down and writes an account, but he wants us to see the answer to why this happened. So as we read through this account, the author has a purpose. This isn't just an historical account for us, but we are to learn from this lesson. And what we're going to see as we go through these two chapters, it's broken out pretty easily. And in the first 12 verses of chapter 18 are kind of Hezekiah's resume, or better yet, his street cred. Why was Hezekiah the man for the time, the man for the job? And then from verse 13 to the end of the chapter, we see Hezekiah's crisis. And the crisis comes in the form of the beast of the east. Now we hear that and we think, oh, that's some football team out there. That's what they call themselves, the beast of the east. No, these were the Assyrians. They were a real threat. They were known for cruelty. They're, they're the ones who invented crucifixion. They're known for torture. They're known for just playing games with their enemies, such as capturing them, taking some of them and just cutting out their eyes and then setting them loose to see if they can survive on their own without any sight. So the beast of the east was a real threat and this was Hezekiah's crisis. When we get to chapter 19, we're gonna see that Hezekiah seeks the Lord. When things are at their worst, he will seek the Lord. And then we're going to see Assyria taunt Yahweh. They're going to quit picking on Hezekiah and they're going to go straight for Yahweh. And the showdown begins. Yahweh versus the king of Assyria, whose name was Sennacherib. Hezekiah prays fervently, and then Yahweh speaks through his prophet Isaiah. That's where we're going. But to get there, and I want you to understand this, and I know for some people, they, they really have a distaste for history, and they don't like the names, the places, and the dates, but I'm going to try to give you some information that helps us to understand what we're going to read. So we're going to review a little bit of history now, let's first review who the, the main characters of this narrative are. There are three main characters. The first one is the nation of Judah. So you remember the divided kingdom about 922 BC. Solomon's son takes over as king and he's just terrible king. And 10 tribes in the north say, we're out of here. We're forming our own country with our own king. And so they left and they did that. And we, we call them Israel. And their capital was Samaria up there. But in the south, it was Judah. And their capital was Jerusalem. And the kings that we'll talk about are, we're going to hear about Ahaz, but the main one is Hezekiah. So Judah's main player. Second one is Assyria. We call them the, the beast of the east. This is, these are the bad guys. These are the wicked. These are the cruel. These are the absolutely powerful world-dominating power at the time on the earth. Their capital was Nineveh. And their kings 
we'd begin with Shalamanzar, uh, Shalamanezer, Sargon, and then Sennacherib. The other main player is Yahweh, who needs no introduction. Now, there are a few minor characters to be aware of because we're going we're gonna to hear them, and, and I don't want you to be confused. The first one is Israel. We talked about that, the northern kingdom of Israel, capital of Samaria. The king during this period was Hosea. Then there's Syria, not to be confused with Assyria, just Syria, the capital of Damascus. They're also known as Aram. Then some smaller players, Egypt, not the powerful Egypt of Exodus, the one we remember with the powerful Pharaoh. This is a weakened and recently conquered by Ethiopia, Egypt. There's Babylon, not the powerful Babylon that's yet to come under Nebuchadnezzar, but these were now basal states of Assyria, and then Philistia. Yes, the Philistines are still around, and their primary location was the Gaza area at the time. And also, please don't be confused by the dates that we see in the text, because they are confusing. You see, the author is going to describe the reigns of kings. And when he describes the reigns of kings, he just throws it out there and kind of lets it for us to figure out the details if you care. You see, often when we see the reigns of the king, and we'll use Hezekiah as an example, Hezekiah was born about 740 BC. When he was 11, he was made co-regent with his father Ahaz. So he was called a king. He wasn't the king, but he was called a king at that time. And sometimes they refer to that date. So in 729, he is king. When his father Ahaz died, he was the only king. And then later on, when he had his son come along, Manasseh, Manasseh eventually co-ruled as well. And so you've got these strange dates. Don't let them confuse you. I'm going to try to talk you through the dates as we go. But the, the dates don't seem to make sense if you don't put a little study into them. And so since Scripture doesn't tell us the years, Scripture doesn't say, oh, this was X number of years before the Messiah. That's how we would date it, B.C., before Christ. We'd say, oh, that's when this happened. Um, we extrapolate the information to get the dates from various sources. For example, on June 15th, 763 B.C., there was a solar eclipse in that part of the world. And you know what? People wrote about it. The Assyrians wrote about it. The Babylonians wrote about it. And they have it in their records. And the Assyrians and the Babylonians also wrote about the Israelites and the kings that were there. So when we put all of that together with our biblical text, we can put the years together and we can get a timeline. So when Ahaz was king of Judah, and this is prior to, uh, this is about 731 uh, BC, uh, the beast Assyria was threatening Syria and Israel. Now, you remember this from, we talked about this earlier. Jared preached on this earlier in Isaiah. So what had happened is Israel, we'll call them Samaria and Damascus, wanted Judah, the southern kingdom, to join them in war against Assyria. And Ahaz said, no, I'm not going to join you in war. And so they decided that they're going to attack Jerusalem so they could put their own king in charge and then their king would join them in their battle against Assyria. And what does Ahaz do? 
something that's extremely foolish. You've got the beast of the east. They're threatening these countries. So Ahaz went to Assyria and said, hey, how about I pay you to protect us from these guys? Assyria's probably thinking, you're on the list too. <laughs> I, I just go through Syria first, then through Israel, then I'm going to get to Judah, then Philistia, and, and then Egypt. You're, you're, you're on the meal ticket. You're on the menu. But if you're going to pay me, okay, we'll do that too. And, and, and through Isaiah, the Lord says, don't make that agreement, but Ahaz did. And they began paying annual tribute to Assyria. Well, Assyria did attack Damascus or Syria, and they conquered him. And Ahaz was, was astounded by this, and he actually went to Damascus. And, and he looked, and he actually liked the gods of Assyria who had attacked, and he brought, some of the, he brought an altar back, and he brought their gods of Assyria back because he said, oh, well, those must be the powerful gods. Ahaz was not a good king did not follow Yahweh. And so Ahaz makes this allegiance with Assyria, brings things back, and that's how he wants to worship. And he actually closes up and nails shut the doors of the temple, stops temple worship. We're, we're going to worship these other gods because that's, they, they win wars. And so that's what he's going to do. And then Assyria is going to attack uh, Israel in the north. They begin besieging the city of Samaria, which is the capital of Israel, in 725, and then finally in 722, they take it. Hoshea was the king. They kill Hoshea, and they take the exiles to distant lands. You see, this was the foreign policy of, of Assyria. When, when you conquered somebody, what you did was you took those people and you spread them out in other lands you've conquered. And you take people from other lands you conquered and you put them there. Why? Because there's no unity of ethnicity. They don't have any identity at that point. They can't unify against Assyria. Of course, the other thing you have to do is pay your taxes and worship the Assyrian gods. So that's, that's their foreign policy. And this is what they did to Israel. Those 10 tribes became dispersed. And we'll see that in the text because even though that's covered in chapter 17 of 2 Kings, it's brought up again in our text as a reminder because this is what's on Hezekiah's mind. This is what Hezekiah is remembering. Well, Ahaz, well, uh, Shalmaneser, who was the king of Assyria, died in 722 that same year, and, and his son Sargon took over as king. And so, of course, when a new king comes in place, the Basil states, the ones who've been paying tribute, a lot of them decide to rebel. This is a good time, change of administration. This, there's, a, there's chaos in Assyria. But uh, Judah doesn't uh, rebel and join that rebellion. Well, in 715, Ahaz died, and Hezekiah became the sole king in Judah. And he began, and began initiating reforms. He saw what had happened to Israel and realized the cause of it was they weren't worshiping Yahweh. They had rejected Yahweh. So the doors of the temple that had been shut, he opens it up again. He gets the Levites together, gets them trained. There's temple worship again. He starts celebrating Passover again. He starts doing these major reforms that occur. But in 705, Sargon died 
and again, widespread, widespread rebellion, and Sennacherib was the new king. And it was this point that Hezekiah started planning his revolt. All right, 705 BC, Hezekiah says, now's the time. We're going we're gonna to revolt. And then because of that, in 701, Sennacherib attacked Judah. So that's where we're at. That's, that brings you up to where we start in the text. And it begins in chapter 18 with Hezekiah's, I like to call it his resume. And you can kind of figure out how important certain kings are by how much ink the author gives to them. Solomon gets the most ink in here, but, but Hezekiah gets quite a bit of ink as well. And it says of, of Hezekiah, he did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh. You see, he realized that his father Ahaz had been taking Judah down the very same path that got Israel destroyed. So Hezekiah wanted to make changes. In the history of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, there were 19 kings, all of them wicked. In the history of Judah, the southern kingdom, there were 20 kings. Only eight were good, 12 were wicked. So Hezekiah sees what his father has done and said, we can't do that. We need to make reforms. And so he's going to make reforms and he removed the high places. So the high places in Israel or in Judah, these are places of former pagan worship. So they tore down the pagan stuff and they said, well, let's worship Yahweh here. And they began to build some altars and they began to build different things in these high places. And Yahweh was not pleased because Yahweh prescribed how worship should be done and worship was to be done in the temple. And so Hezekiah removes the high places. Even though they were worshiping Yahweh, they weren't worshiping him according to the way he prescribed and then it says he removed, he broke down the sacred pillars and the carvings and cut down the Asherah. These are the leftovers from the pagan worship that had to be removed. And then amazingly, he cut up the bronze serpent of Moses. In the book of Numbers, it says, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people. They'd been in sin and rebellion so that many, a people, uh, many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people and, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole. And if, if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So th apparently this bronze serpent on a pole, they kept from that time. It was supposed to be a reminder of how they should put their trust in Yahweh, how they should obey Yahweh, and instead it became a symbol of worship to them. It became a God to them. Hezekiah was so thorough in his reforms that he even destroyed that because it was being used for false worship. People were burning incense to it. And then it says of Hezekiah, he trusted Yahweh like no one before him or after him. Similar language was said of Josiah. It says that he obeyed Yahweh like no one before him or after him. So imagine this, of all the kings, Hezekiah is called out for what? He trusted Yahweh. 
He was given credit. He was given acclaim because he trusted Yahweh. So Yahweh prospered Hezekiah. And this was a reminder. uh, He had this reminder of what had happened to the northern kingdom. We see in verses 9 through 12. It says again that Hosea uh, was uh, attacked and he would be killed. And uh, Samaria had fallen and the people were put in exile. And then it says here... um, It's because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, uh, their God, but transgressed his covenant. Even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, they neither listened nor obeyed. See, there was the lesson for Hezekiah. That's why it's, it's repeated here. Why did that happen to the northern kingdom? Why were the Israelites scattered abroad? They did not obey Yahweh. They didn't listen or obey. But now we come to the time of crisis. So in 701 BC, Hezekiah rebelled and no longer paid that tribute to Assyria. And Assyria's response came quickly. Hezekiah quit paying the tribute and Assyria knew how to deal with treachery. And from the records of Assyria, here's what they claim. They came in and they started attacking the different cities and villages in Judah, the southern kingdom. And here's from their records. We actually have their records from Assyria. And it says that they claim to have captured 46 fortified cities of Judah, plus a number of their villages. And then the records say that Sennacherib hemmed up Hezekiah in Jerusalem, like like a bird within its cage. This is what Sennacherib thought he had done. You're not going to pay tribute to me. He came in and started taking them all out. And he even camped down there in uh, about 28 miles from uh, Jerusalem. And Hezekiah was probably shocked and surprised by how quickly Assyria responded. So he decides to pay him off. And we see this, and he's going to pay him 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. A talent weighs about 75 pounds. So 300 talents of silver is a lot. 30 talents of gold is a lot. But he decides to pay them off. And surprise, surprise, Assyria is not to be bought off. They're going to take it, and they did. They took the money, and it says in their records there was a lot more. Jewels and, and elephant hides and all different kinds of things that they took from Judah but they weren't satisfied. Assyria is not satisfied with that. Why? They had a rebellious king, Hezekiah, in place, and they don't tolerate that. They'd rather remove Hezekiah, put one of their own in there, and get the annual tribute. That was their goal. And so even though they are down um, in Lachish, uh, in Judah, they send a delegation to show up. And we see these, these words here, Tartan and, and uh, Rabsaris and Rabshaka. Uh, those, are ter- those are kind of uh, titles, not names. So the Tartan is kind of the high commander of the military. So if you want to go and intimidate, you've got a number of soldiers coming with you and you have the high commander of the military. What does that tell you? If he wants to call more, he can. 
He's the one in charge of the military. They also have Rabsaris, who was an assistant to the king. And most likely he was more like the secretary. He's the one that's writing all this down for the king to keep the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, informed. And then you have Rabshaka. He's kind of the spokesman. He's the emissary. He's the one who's going to speak for the king and say, here are the negotiations. And the negotiations aren't favorable to Judah at all. And we have a record of the negotiations in here. They wanted Hezekiah removed. And so they want to get rid of him, but they also want the people to just give up and complete surrender. And so he's going to give, the emissary is going to give military and religious reasons for complete surrender. And he uses brilliant psychological warfare to do this. So they're standing near the walls of Jerusalem within the earshot of the people. And there's certainly guards on the walls who can hear everything. And he says, basically, your preparations are ill-conceived and what you think are strengths are really weaknesses. And that's how he's going to make this argument. And he starts out and he, he, he uh, mocks them. And he says that, uh, are, basically, are you really warriors? Are you really prepared? You see, Hezekiah had put about setting up commanders. And he started building his armory with, with shields and with spears. And he was getting ready to attack or to defend, I should say. And so the mocking is, are you really the warriors? You see, the Assyrians, everybody served. And you had, by the way, a three-year cycle. So when you were in the military, year one, you were going to work on normally uh, civic projects, building cities, building whatever, and it helps that you're going to be physically strong and able. The second year, you're going to go fight, and you're going to spend a year in the military actually engaging with the enemy. The third year, you're off. You're back home with your family for a year, and then it starts over again. You're doing civil projects and building up physical strength and stamina and then fighting and so on. This is, how, this is the warrior culture that they had developed. And they're mocking him saying, are, are you ready for this? Do you really think that by just setting up commanders who have really no experience and, and you, you've made some shields and some spears, have you not been paying attention? And modern warfare at that time was chariots. You want to win wars, you have to have chariots. That was modern warfare. So he's, he's mocking him. And then he mocks these, and we see this from Isaiah 30. It talks about this agreement with Egypt. And Yahweh says, don't do it. But they make an agreement with Egypt. So he mocks him again. says, can your little secret negotiation with Egypt save you? He says, behold, verse 21, you are trusting now in Egypt. It's a broken reed. Pharaoh, you're, you're going to trust in Pharaoh? Egypt was weak at this point. And this little secret negotiation wasn't going to help. And so he's taunting him there. And then he taunts him and mocks him even more about their military. And he, he basically says, let's make a bet right now. I here's what the deal is. I will give you 2,000 horses if you have 2,000 horsemen. He had a, an army of 185,000. You're in little Jerusalem and you can't even put together 2,000 cavalry. 
Are you seeing the odds here, Hezekiah? People of Judah, of Jerusalem, you don't stand a chance. The military might, the training, the expertise was all on a serious side. Why are you rebelling? This will not go well for you. And then he mocks him some more. He says, my worst captain, the worst one I have with just his troops could defeat any of you all anytime, anywhere. You have a worthless military. You're weak. And why are you doing this? And then he, he makes this mocking uh, statement even more. And he claims that he's the one who's on Yahweh's side. He probably knew of the prophecy of Isaiah. We call that Isaiah 10 verse 5, uh, five where it says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. I think he missed the woe part to Assyria. But Assyria was the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. And so here he's claiming that, that we're actually the ones on Yahweh's side, not you. And so the people, the, the, the emissaries from, from Hezekiah go forth and they, they plead with him. They say, quit speaking in Hebrew. <laughs> Would you please speak in Aramaic? Aramaic is the official language. And plus, we don't want all these people to hear. Of course, they're not going to do that. They knew that the people were, were, were fearful of this. And why were they so fearful? Well, Syria was powerful and cruel. They impaled people. Slow death. Like I said, they invented crucifixion. There are other cruelties too gruesome to include here. So if you oppose Assyria, this isn't just you're going to lose your land and your possessions, but you're going to suffer physical pain and probably death. That's what you get if you oppose us. So here he makes an offer to the people. And so he says, who is the great king? Well, Sennacherib's the great king. Look at what's going on in the world. So listen to what he says. Don't listen to Hezekiah. So don't put your trust in Hezekiah and don't put your trust in Yahweh. But instead, take the kind offer of the king of Assyria. Here's what he's promising. You'll eat of your own vine. Have your own fig tree. Have your own cistern. I'll take you someplace great. With, with bread and vineyards and olive trees and honey. Plus, here's the real bonus. You'll get to live and I won't kill you. This is the sweet offer that Sennacherib is making. And then he boasts some more. He said, none of the other gods of the other nations succeeded in stopping us. He says, he even brings up Northern Kingdom. What about Samaria? What about Israel? They were Jews, they were Hebrews like you, and Yahweh didn't save them. So why would Yahweh deliver you now? And Sennacherib and the other kings of Assyria were so boastful when they would conquer a people, they would take those people's gods, the carved images, the, you know, the, the, the images of their gods, they would take those and they would line them up in their own temple to their God as captives. Like we took these other gods prisoner. And soon Yahweh will be one of those that is a prisoner to our God. And this is the mocking that they're making. 
But Hezekiah told the people to remain silent, and they did. The Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians to look to the things that are unseen, namely Yahweh for our hope, and not to the things that are seen. It says, as, as we look not to those things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Hezekiah is reminding him of Yahweh. He trusted Yahweh. Remember, that's his, that's his moniker. He trusted Yahweh. And he tells the people, we trust in Yahweh, not in the things we see, for Yahweh will deliver Well, when this terrible news comes, we now get to chapter 19. Hezekiah, in the first uh, seven verses, um, takes this and and he does something that was really uh, different for most kings when they were in trouble like this. So when this threat came, what would most kings do? They would call their military advisors. They would call their counselors together. What does Hezekiah do? He calls for Isaiah the prophet. He goes to the house of the Lord and he calls for the prophet of God to come and he pleads his case. He and the leaders are covered in sackcloth, a symbol of humility and despair. It's a day of distress, they say. We can't do anything to help ourselves. Only Yahweh can save us. And additionally, Yahweh was mocked as weak and helpless against the Assyrians. So this is his plea that he He calls out and Yahweh promises relief because he had uh, been mocked. In verse uh, 6 of 19, he says, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So Yahweh promises relief in three things. He says, first thing is, Sennacherib is going to hear a rumor, and he's going to believe it, and that will get him off your back for a moment. But also, eventually, Sennacherib is going to totally leave and go back to his land. And more so, when he gets back there, he's going to be killed. So don't worry about Sennacherib. Don't worry about him. So we see in in verse 8, beginning in there, the uh, emissaries, the emissary from Assyria returned and they found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna. So that's another city in Jerusalem. They had been in Lachish, now they're going to Libna. They left Lachish. Now the king had heard concerning uh, the, the king of Cush or the king of Egypt. So here's the rumor. Egypt is getting ready to attack you. So Sennacherib takes his mind off of of this Jerusalem problem, this Hezekiah problem, and he needs to focus on this Egypt problem because there's rumor that Egypt is about to attack. So that's what he does. He takes his eyes off of that, but instead he writes a letter and he gives it back to his emissary. He says, take this letter to Hezekiah and he writes it out. He says, thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. He accuses Yahweh of deceiving the people. And he says, behold, you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction 
and you shall be delivered? Have not the gods of the nations delivered them, the gods of my fathers, uh, that my fathers destroyed? And then he names them. And he names the kings. Why is he naming the kings? Because those kings are dead. See, when he went in there and conquered them, he killed the kings. So he's, he says, where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sebarephim, Daim, the king of Hina, or the king of Eva? I'll tell you where they are. They're dead. That's what his point is. Hezekiah, this is for you. This is the promise that I'm saying to you. So Hezekiah prays, verse 14. He received the letter and he took it back to the house of the Lord and he, and he lays it out before the, before the Lord. Because he said, he, he said, Lord, I'm pleading with you. We cannot stop this. We have no power on our own. We need you to act. Remember, no one had ever trusted Yahweh like Hezekiah did. Hezekiah is simply doing what was natural for him to do, to trust Yahweh when things were really terrible. And he begins his prayer, and this is great, verse 14, with praise and worship. He said he received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, and he spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the heaven and the earth. So he says, praise and worship. You're the only true God. There are no other gods. And I don't fear Assyria because I can trust you to help us. And then he asks him, and he says, please listen to the mocking of Sennacherib. He says, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he sent to mock the living God. And then he says, oh, by the way, the stories are true. Sennacherib has destroyed many people and much land. He says, truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nation in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wooden stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So he says, look, it's true what they did, but the gods of those people aren't gods. Those are things that were created by people's hands. You're the true God. He says, so now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all of the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Save us is his plea. And when you save us, you know, we often pray that you hear well, oftentimes when we start our service, we'll say that, that we're trusting Christ to do the impossible. We trust Christ to do things in our midst that can only be attributed to a mighty God. We pray that Christ would do things in our midst that there's no way even all of us together could do it and make it happen, but only God in heaven could make it happen. And that's what Hezekiah's prayer here is. I want you to do something so amazing that nobody looks at it and says, man, Hezekiah, good dude, great soldiers, good commanders, their shields, their spears, top notch, great weaponry. 
No, you're not going to give credit to anything like that. Only, only one gets credit. Yahweh. And that's why we pray that we are trusting Christ to do the impossible so much so that people can look and say, well, there must be a God because you can't explain it by us. You can look at us and go, no, they didn't do it. And that's okay. And so Yahweh answers his prayer and he answers it uh, through Isaiah and he answers it with some poetry. And he starts out and he says that she despises you. That is Assyria despises you. Assyria scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. What he's saying is Jerusalem since King David has never been conquered. Here's a city that since they were set up roughly 300 years prior, has never been conquered. And so Assyria's got their eye on this. Boy, would that be a treasure. Never been conquered, we're going to be the ones. It says that Assyria wags her head behind you, just kind of shakes it like, yeah, this, this is a no-brainer. We're going to win this one. But they said, here, have you not really mocked Yahweh? Even though you're talking about Hezekiah, you're talking about Jerusalem, you're really mocking Yahweh. It says, whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. And then they boast of their, their so-called victories. He said, by your messengers, you have mocked the Lord. And you have said, with my many chariots, I've gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon. I felled the tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I entered its furthest lodging place, its most fruitful forest. In other words, no one could stop us. This is their boasting. He said, I dug wells and drank foreign waters, and I dried up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Meaning drinking water, foreign water, means I've been everywhere. I made it my home because I conquered you. And then my army is so vast that when we march it's, we can dry up streams because we're so vast in our army. This is the boasting that he has. But in verse 25, the Lord turns the tables on him. He says, have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what, uh, what now I bring to pass that you should be turned fortified cities uh, into heaps of ruins. So God is saying, you know what? I planned all this before time began. And he's going to go on further. I know everything you do. I know everything you say. Amazing, I know everything you think. I know it all. Yahweh is actually the one who is in charge of all of this. And in verse 28, he says, I'm going to send you home, you who boost, uh, boast of these foreign conquests. You're boasting about what you're doing, and Yahweh is going to send them home. Then verses 29 through 34, um, Here's the promise to Hezekiah. He says, look, it's going to be okay. The harvest will return and they're going to be plentiful. Yahweh will do this. Hezekiah, you don't have to do a thing. And Sennacherib will not take Jerusalem. Not an arrow, it says, uh, will come. And then we get the ending, verse 35 through 37. And he says, that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down the 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. So the Lord goes and fights the battle. 
And in the morning, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers lie dead. And Sennacherib wakes up. Some of his other folks who weren't killed wake up. And they rise early and behold, all these dead bodies. So he departed, went home, back to Nineveh, just like God had promised he would. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishra, his God, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Eshadon, his son, reigned in his place. It almost seems anticlimactic. This huge buildup of this tremendous threat, this crisis. And yet, in just a few verses, we get the epilogue. Yahweh did it. Slaughtered 185,000 Assyrians in the night. Yahweh did it. And Sennacherib fled home where he would be killed by his own sons. So what do we do with this? The historian wanted us to learn from this. So I've got a few applications here. We'll go quickly. As Jared always says, I just have 12 application points and we'll go quickly. I only have three. Number one, build your resume. What is your resume look like? Are you someone who trusts Yahweh, who obeys his commandments? You know, we, many of us have fairly easy times right now. If we're not trusting Yahweh now, we're not walking in obedience now, we are not going to be trusting and walking in obedience in difficult times. We need to be building our resume now. Remove sin from our lives. Trust in God and obey his commandments. Number two, sin is never satisfied. It will always want more. Hezekiah tried to pay off Sennacherib, thought he could just give him some money, he'd go away, things back to normal. And what did Sennacherib want? More. He wanted everything. He wanted complete surrender. And you see, sin behaves like that in our lives. Sometimes we're like, oh, if I just do this sin once, it'll satisfy me, and then I'll be satisfied forever, and I won't have to worry about it. And you give in to that sin and then the sin once more. Sin is never satisfied. We must battle sin to the death, as we say here. Every step of the way, we've got to remove sin from our lives. And then finally, living a life of trust, knowing that the Lord answers in his way according to his timing. We have confidence that we know that even what's going on today in our world, in our lives, some good, some bad. Some people are going through terrible times. All decided in ages past. The Lord God is in control of everything. And we put our trust in him for that. And we know that it is not us, but it is the zeal of the Lord that accomplishes these things for us so we can trust in him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the example of faithfulness that we see in it. Help us to be a people who trust in you during the good times, but especially in the difficult times. And we trust you because you're faithful and you're good, even when we're not. Your word is true. 
even in the midst of a culture that cries otherwise, Lord. So help us in these times by granting to us wisdom and understanding, Lord, that we may walk with you. We pray this through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.